All right, third, well, second main category of psalms. We talked about the psalms of orientation last week, and this week we need to talk about the psalms of disorientation. The psalms of orientation were expressing a condition or a response to the good times. Life as the feeling of life. Let's talk about feeling. The feeling of life as it ought to be. The Psalms of Orientation are when you feel joy in the Lord, when you feel gratitude to God for his goodness, when you see the Lord's strong arm come through for you, when you sense his comfort and his closeness. And those are the Psalms of Orientation, life as it ought to be, to to our uh, way of saying things. And then the Psalms of Disorientation are obviously the other side of that coin. They are our response to or describing the condition of the bad times, the difficult times, experiences of hurt and alienation and suffering run all throughout the Psalms of disorientation. This is when life seems chaotic. It's when life seems to be in painful disarray. And what the Psalms show us is how godly people think through those times, how they feel in those times. And the Psalms of disorientation are of great help to us because as we talked about last week, when we talked about some of the challenges with more modern church music, is that it doesn't really have a place for suffering. It doesn't have a place for sadness or for hardship, which is really alienating when you're the worshiper. Knowing that if I come in to worship God, And all these people around me are singing shine, Jesus, shine. And my heart doesn't feel shine, Jesus, shine. I mean, think about the ways you can interpret that. The way many people interpret that is no one is like me. Everybody else is feeling close to God and the joy of the Lord is their strength. And I am all alone in my feelings of distance from God and sadness. Or... Some people look at that and think, what a bunch of fakers. This whole religion is filled with fakers. People who just pretend that everything in life is good. It's, uh, it's Jake's favorite meme of the, the dog in the chair and the house is on fire all around him. And it just says, this is fine. <laughs> that's, that's, if you don't have psalms of disorientation, what Christian worship could lead you to believe is that we are either supposed to pretend that it's fine And there's a huge swath of Christians who feel that burden, that they're always supposed to pretend that everything is fine. Or everything actually is fine if you have enough faith. And there's a whole swath of Christians who believe that and then say the problem is you. If you would just have more faith, this stuff wouldn't happen to you. And I think we all have our experience through the years of run-ins with that type of thought. And the Psalms of Disorientation are this incredible refutation of both of those errors that say, no, no, actually, there are a lot of things that are not fine. They're not experientially fine. There are a lot of things that are painful and difficult and chaotic and disorienting. And the person of faith can still respond to those events in faith. What does that look like? Well, that's what the Psalms of Disorientation teach us. And they don't just teach us, they offer us, they offer us help. Uh, they offer us a song to sing when it's not a song we could write ourselves. They offer us permission to sing a song that we might otherwise feel guilty about singing. I, I mean, I hope that's the case, that you think, God doesn't want to hear my complaining. Well, no, he doesn't want to hear your complaining unless your complaining is how long, O Lord, why do I feel far from you? God actually, this is not a careful way to say God likes that kind of complaining. God wants our hearts and our words to be an effort to draw closer to God. And that's what these Psalms are, but they're not candy coated whatsoever. And that's the the Psalms of disorientation. What do people talk like? especially toward God in these really difficult times. 
So that's the usefulness and the purpose of them. If you think about it, there's a lot you can do with the Psalms of disorientation. You can pray them, you can sing them, you can think them when you know that if you're going to say something, you're just going to burst into tears. You can take comfort in the very fact that they exist, that God allows and, and promotes and has canonized this type of talk. And you can, you can imitate them. You can, you can find in them permission to think this way. These are a little harder to sort of diagram on the board than the Psalms of Orientation were. But that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? <laughs> when life is good and life seems well-oriented and you want to compose a song or a prayer to God, you can sit down with a pretty nice template and you can use this pretty nice formula to say, I'm going to tell people they should praise God. I'm going to tell people why they should praise God. And I'm going to remind people that God is worthy of their praise. Makes sense when your head's in a good place. If you try to sit down and compose a poem or a song to God, when life is chaotic, when life is in painful disarray, what's going to happen? It's just the word vomit of the heart. And, and so in many ways, the structure of the Psalms of disorientation is rather unstructured. Now, there is a uh, there, there is a, a high-level structure we can look at and see with these. And then today, we're going to talk about the main type of psalms of disorientation, which are laments, and two types of laments. There's individual laments, and there's corporate laments. There's my personal lament, and then there's our shared collective laments. So we'll talk about those, and we'll look at some examples. Uh, there are also, within the psalms of disorientation, wisdom psalms. The same genre that we just talked about in the psalms of orientation that tell you how the world is uh, rightly ordered, where knowledge can be found. Well, the answer to that question, where can knowledge be found, doesn't change just because life is hard and in chaos. And so there are actually wisdom psalms within the psalms of disorientation. And we'll look at one of those or a couple of those as well. And then there's one giant category of psalms of disorientation, which are the imprecatory psalms that we won't look at today. We'll look at next week all by themselves, but they'll fit in this category because they, uh, it's good to give them enough time for their own unpacking. So that's the plan. Today we'll talk about laments and wisdom psalms within the Psalms of Disorientation, and next week we'll talk about imprecatory psalms. All right, structure. If you try to find structure in the Psalms of Disorientation, it's not as much about the order as the elements. You can mix up the elements into different orders. Sometimes you'll see the order that I'm about to share, but really let's just talk about the elements of a psalm of disorientation more than any particular order. The first is the, the fancy theological word, is the invocation. What's a non-theological description of an invocation? Especially in a psalm of disorientation, it's a plea to God for help. An invocation is invoking the deity. You've all heard me tell my seminary story, I imagine many times by now, in faces like not, in worship class, and we have to conduct a worship service every week, and everybody participates in different elements, and the best prayer in the whole class has the invocation the first Sunday, and he prays this beautiful, I mean, just stunning prayer to open the worship service. And Dr. Oliver looks at him and says, Mr. So-and-so, that was a beautiful prayer, absolutely wonderful. It only had one minor problem. You failed to invoke the deity. The invocation has but one job, invoke the deity. <laughs> he forgot, Lord, be with us. Come to us, Lord. Send your spirit, Lord. Some element of asking God to come down to us is critical of the invocation. In a psalm of disorientation, the specifics of that 
coming down are for help. Lord, come to my aid. Lord, come do something. Deliver me, O Lord, is an invocation. It's an invocation for God to do very, something very specific, to deliver, uh, to, to uh, come and to uh, bring help. A second element is the complaint. This is why I'm comfortable, mildly comfortable, saying that God wants to hear these kinds of complaints from us because we have lots of psalms that contain these kinds of complaints. So there's some sort of sanctified element of these particular complaints. What are some of the complaints in the Psalms of Disorientation? What, who, who, who is the problem in Psalms of Disorientation? There's multiple answers, but what are they? Enemies, deliver me from my enemies. One answer would be like the psalmist's own soul. Ah, self. It's an important answer. Sometimes the psalmist is saying, deliver me from myself. <laughs> I am the problem. Um, what's another one? Who, who else does this? Uh, feeling alone. Uh, so the, the circumstances. But if we think of people, God speaking, uh, <laughs> they're always particularly often the ruling class of the, the leaders. Leader, yeah. yeah. There's a big one we're leaving off though. Who is the problem? Oh, what a bunch God. of cowards! <laughs> yeah. I was going to say God. Bunch of cowards. Some of the psalms of disorientation. God is the problem. Deliver me from you. <laughs> I don't like this uh, is a common type of complaint. So yeah, uh, and then where who, who the problem is and um, who the problem is informs what is the relief that the prayer is asking for. It's funny how closely these things tie to just legal law cases. You, you have an offended party that comes and asks the law to make things right, make it as it ought to be. They have to have a complaint. They have to have been actually harmed in some way. And there has to be someone who's caused this. And then there's a particular relief that they're seeking. And what relief they're seeking informs uh, is informed by who the enemy is, who the complaint is. So if, if it's enemies, this is where, what, what is the, if, if the situation of distress is caused by other people, what type of psalm might that turn into? Imprecatory. Destroy them. Make them stop. If the situation of distress is caused by self, our own sin, what might that lead to? Ah, confession. Right? Then we get psalms that have confession as an important undertone. Um, if, if they're caused by things like God's people or certain types of enemies bringing false accusations, which is a common one in the Psalms. We just saw this in Job. What is the relief that you're looking for against false accusations? Justice. Yeah, justice, vindication. So you'll be able to see in these Psalms of disorientation a connectedness between the source of the problem and the relief that the individual is seeking. Um, Imprecatory or are psalms of curse. This is like 109 and 137. Confession. Obviously, 51 is the one we know best, but also, uh, there's a ton. 638, 102. There's a lot of them. Really good psalms of confession. And then vindication. Um, Psalms 7 and 8, 7 especially, 3 through 5, but then all of chapter 8 falls into that. Um, 
Psalm 26 is a psalm of vindication. And these are all psalms of disorientation. Circumstances are not good. Life is um, in painful disarray. Let me ask God, beg God, plea with God to come do something about this circumstance. And because of how I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing, that's going to inform what I ask God to do. Another element is confidence in God's response. You will nearly always, and we'll get to the exception, you will nearly always find confidence in God's response. And what's great about the faith that God gives us and the way that that faith can work in disorienting times is we can have confidence that if we've diagnosed the problem correctly, God will apply the appropriate relief. He will actually do what needs to be done. And we can have confidence that if we've diagnosed the problem incorrectly, if the thing that we're asking for is not right, if what was needed was confession because somebody brought my sin to me, but what I prayed instead was imprecatory, Lord, destroy her. If that is not right, God will do what is right anyway. And in some supernatural way beyond our understanding, he'll actually use our wrong prayer to accomplish his right purpose. It is of great comfort to the Christian that our prayers are effective and God uses them in a, in a meaningful, powerful way. He doesn't choose to use anything else that way. And you can't pray it wrong and cause God to do wrong. <laughs> he will do right. And so the psalmists are able, even in these overwhelmingly disorienting experiences, how long, O oh Lord, why, God, why do the wicked prosper? Why am I in this difficult position? And by faith, even in those prayers, they have confidence that God will do what is right. And that's why you also will often find beyond that praise. Just as in the Psalms of Orientation, you will find God's people praising God. And, and boy, how hard is this? In moments, and, and I say moments, I don't mean seconds. Moments can be lives. <laughs> David had a rough decade there. <laughs> in times of disorientation. You, God's people by faith could pray, you will do what is good. I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't understand it. But I know it to be true. You will do what is right. So those are the elements, if not the structure, of Psalms of Disorientation. What questions do we have here? And we'll look at some laments. When you on the point mark when it's God, what is the relief based hmm. on? Less God? <laughs> it sounds right to me. What ends up happening, I'm I'm trying to reason backwards here. What ends up happening in those is that it becomes a confession issue. Uh so I I I think this is where it ends up. And not even I mean Job's such a great example of this because it I don't mean, oh, this bad thing that's happening is actually because of my sin, and if I confess that sin, it will go away. Sometimes that's true. I mean, I, 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 it's the tension of Job and the like is that, yes, everything I'm about to say about Job's experience like, is, is true, and we we should not assume when we suffer that it's because of our sin. Quite the opposite. We should assume when we suffer it's because of our connection to Christ and we should lean more into that connection to Christ. But, <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I skip the step a lot where I double check that. 
I skip the step a lot where I pray, as David does, to show me my sin. I don't think this is because of my sin, but show me if it is. And unfortunately, God has been very gracious to answer that prayer for me many times and show me that it is. And so we don't want to skip that. Now, that said, a lot of times what happens is it's the Job situation where your, your circumstance is not caused by a particular sin, but your circumstance will reveal some sin in you. They'll reveal, it'll reveal discontent. It'll reveal idols. That's such a big one. How else are you going to find your idols unless God threatens them? Y'all remember when Neil said at the conference last October, somebody asked a good question in the Q&A. It's like, you know, how do you find your secret sins? They're secrets. How, how do you find your blind spots? You're blind to them. Y'all remember what Neil said? What do you get angry about? Yeah. What makes you angry? What makes you angry? And I, like I, that stuck with me because uh, when you, why did that make me so angry? And you just sort of dig deep and dig deep and you think, and you're like, oh, oh, that's what it threatened. That's what it put at risk that I value more than I should. Um, and so that is what I mean by often that accusation leads to confession. I don't mean that the majority of the time you're going to find some secret sin that caused this suffering. I mean that God has purposed that suffering to uncover secret sins within you because he is far more concerned that you be made ready for the day of Christ's coming than he is that you be comfortable in your life tomorrow. And at one level, that's unpleasant, but that's why scripture tries to tell us things like, you know, we're grass. <laughs> we're, we're here a blink of an eye. We're, how many different ways can scripture tell you this life that you think is absolutely everything ain't much? Does that answer, Andrew? Are there uh, examples in the Psalms where maybe like initially it's not easy to put it in one of these categories? It's just general disorientation. You're just like, wow. I I get what you're asking. I think because the category of lament is so broad, you can just immediately recognize them as laments. Anybody who's complaining about the world as it is or their experience of it, it is a lament. And so I think you can pretty quickly categorize it there. Now, what's fascinating is when you do that and you take all the laments and you look for these elements, it's whenever one of these elements doesn't appear or whenever anything is different, that should be like, you know, red alarm, you know, fire and lights and sound going off to say, hey, look at me, this matters, this matters, this difference matters, uh, which is going to be very helpful as we read through them. Other questions? Are there psalms that don't fall into kingship or one of the other categories that sit between orientation and disorientation? Like, there's good times and bad times in the same psalm, or they're either pretty much fall into one or the other, or they're categorized as something else? The categorization is based on intent more than content. And so while there are psalms that have negative and positive elements, it's pretty I'm going to say easy to characterize it as either this is a lament where the person is also expressing confidence and praise, or this is praise where the person is using God's actions in the bad times as a praiseworthy effect. Stephen, when you go to Psalm 13, Daphne, when you go to Psalm 79, Noah, will you go to Psalm 88? Uh, Matt or Renee, 49. Crystal or Nick, 73. It'll be a while before we get there. All right, let's talk about laments. Laments cry out to God in the midst of suffering. If hymns, as a category, are filled with praise and language of joy... Laments are filled with complaints and language of suffering. But 
every lament, asterisk, moves toward praise. It's such an important reminder, and we'll unpack this a little bit after Psalm 88. But these laments, and we we don't get to, if, if we do the game of saying, well, then that person wasn't really going through what I'm going through, we don't know our history at all. Because we can go read some of the stories of what's happening in people's lives when these psalms were written. And uh, it's not a contest of who can suffer worse, but I will tell you, you don't win. (laughs) And, And these laments move toward praise. It's, it's a remarkable thing. All right, so different types of laments. I said there's individual and there's corporate. This is long, so read as fast as you can, Stephen. But let's start with an individual lament. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. All right. Where is Psalm 13? Where is the complaint? Yeah, what, what is the complaint? The Lord's forgotten me. The writer feels as though the Lord has forgotten him. And then you have the plea to God for help. Verses 3 and 4. Right? Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes. The Psalms go back and forth between what the writer is struggling with and what the writer knows to be true about God. I mean, how... That story checks out, right? (laughs) This tension in the difficult times between our struggle and what we know to be true about God. And this really captures it. How long, O Lord... This is never going to end. I'm going to die this way and my enemies will rejoice over me. Consider and answer me, O Lord. Light up my eyes. All right, then what happens? What's verse 5? Confidence in God's response. I have trusted in your steadfast love. That is a conscious choice. You say, I don't feel like it. I don't feel like trusting in God's steadfast love. I hear you. There are moments where I hear you. But by faith, we, we, that's what perseverance is. There has to be something that requires perseverance. <laughs> there, there has to be something that, that calls us to put our faith to use. And so this, this testing of our faith that happens in life in a fallen world, we, for lack of a better term, we, we, we power through it. But the way we power through it is not what we'd expect. Because what we typically expect with power through it is, I'll do this myself. I will, I will pull myself up by my bootstraps or however that works. And I will make this happen. But that's not the confidence you find in these Psalms, is it? There's no, I will make this happen. There is confidence in God's response. I will trust in God. That is the only thing I can do that is going to help me here. I will trust, I have trusted in your steadfast love. And then, what's verse 6? Praise. He even goes beyond that trust toward praise. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. That it's easy to say, I will sing to the Lord because my lines have fallen in pleasant places. Because your lines are in pleasant places. That's a pretty good day. And now it's, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all 
the day. How often does this person feel sad? All the day. And out of that sadness, yet is confident that God will do what is right and good and is able to praise. He has dealt bountifully with me. What God is doing right now is for my good. That's, that is some rock solid faith that can write and sing this psalm in times of disorientation. That is an individual lament. All right, now let's hear a communal lament or a corporate lament. This is a response to a community crisis, to the church or God's people being beat down. Psalm 79. Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord, Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your namesake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, We'll give thanks to you forever, from generation to generation. We will recount your praise. Communal lament. The, the structure has the same elements, asking for God to come and help, a complaint about what's wrong, confident in his response, praise in his goodness. Verse 13, we will give thanks to you forever. So the structure has the same elements. It's a very different type of situation. The situation is... The people of God, at least the remnant, the righteous ones, were worshiping God the way God had told them to. They were doing everything right in building the church and the people of God. And so it's very confusing and disorienting to them when it looks like they're the chumps. They, their, their city is overrun and destroyed. The temple is turned upside down. The abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not stand. Let the reader understand, because I don't. They look like the chumps. We followed God. We built our lives at the way he told us to. We were the community of faith. And the thing gets burned to the ground. And our enemies are making fun of us. They're mocking us for the very things that God commanded us to do. And that's pretty disorienting. How long, O Lord? How long? How long does this go on? When do we get to win? Pour out your anger on the nations. And then... Somewhere between verse 7 and verse 8, as often happens in Psalms of, uh, of disorientation, in these, these laments, there's, a, there's an honesty. If we're dealing honestly with God, why, when is it okay to complain with God? When is it okay to say things like this versus just being a grumbler that's never content with what God's doing? Well, that's a condition of the heart. And so it's not one that you can answer sort of on the, somebody outside of you can't necessarily answer that. But one of the things that does happen 
when you're doing this correctly is that because you're dealing honestly with God, God will deal honestly with you. He will help you. And so in this prayer, what happens to the psalmist making this communal lament between verses 7 and 8 when he says, God, we're not getting what we deserve. We're your people, and we're the ones that did everything right, and we're not getting what we deserve. What happens? He says, actually, success would not be what we deserve. Success would be grace. It would be unmerited favor. We don't need what we deserve. We need mercy. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us. I'm screaming for justice, the first seven verses of the psalm. And then I realize, oh, wait. I don't want justice. I get hosed when justice comes. I need mercy. I need compassion. I need grace. And then the perspective changes. The rest of the psalm, and it's not that anything was wrong in the first seven verses. It's an honest flow of thought that God engages with. It's, it's, it's wrestling with God is what a psalm like this is. And, and it's, it's the process and the experience. It's not just take a verse in isolation. And what happens is the psalm moves. It has movement away from overwhelmed by the feeling of injustice toward us, toward No, wait, we need mercy and compassion. The truly offended party here is God. God, let your name be glorified. That's why your church should prosper, not because we deserve it, but so that your name, for the glory of your name, deliver us. Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations. Before your glory, your holiness is what matters here. And so then you get to verse 13. But we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. We will give thanks to you forever from generation to generation. We'll recount your praise. This is a lament that started with how long, oh Lord, this isn't right. This isn't good. We're the good people. We're doing things the right way and we're not getting a good result. And we take that to God honestly on behalf of the people. And God's response is, somewhere in here, working in the heart of the psalmist, is that what you need? No. No. No, I need God. I need God to act. I need God to do what is right. I need God to do what glorifies God's own name. And I need to focus on walking rightly with God and praising God and not you got to make this stuff go away or I can never be okay. And that's where the lament has this progress. And all of the laments have this movement toward praise. Different amounts. Sometimes you end up in full-blown, you know what? This is where my heart should have been all along. And sometimes you just have these tiny little tokens, these expressions of, hey, things are really dark for me right now, God, but I can... I can see it. I can see your goodness even though I can't feel it. I know it to be true even though I don't know how it's working. They all have that movement toward praise. Except Psalm 88. Noah. Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shale. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, and the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavily, heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me, You've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in so that I can't escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in abandon? 
Are your wonders known in the darkness? Are your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cried to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful souls destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You've caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. All right. Invocation, plea for help is verse 2. O Lord, hear my cry. The complaint is uh, all the rest of it. Where's the confidence in God's response? Nada. Where's the praise? Nary a word to be found. Who is the accusation against in this song? God. You have, you have, you have, you have, you have. It's against God. What do we do with Psalm 88? No movement toward praise. No confidence that God will do what is good within the psalm. What, what, do, we, what do we think of this? I'll give you some thoughts. First is, it, legitimize, it legitimizes the cries of anguish without feeling the need to offer shallow words of hope. In the laments that have the confidence in God's response and the praise, by which I mean all of the other ones, there's nothing shallow about those statements. They're they're real. The psalmist believes them and knows them to be true, whether the psalmist feels them or not. They're not Jesus jukes. They're not platitudes. They're not Hallmark cards. They are real. And if it's not real, it doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to be there. It's like sometimes when we pray, we all do this so we can chuckle together. But sometimes when we're praying for something we really want, and then we get self-conscious through the prayer, and we're like, if it be your will. Like, you don't mean that. (laughs) You mean I really, 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 really want it. (laughs) And then you feel guilty that you didn't say, if it be your will. Well, why don't we have to tack on a fake, if it be your will, in every single prayer? Because our hearts know, if it be your will, is true all the time. And there may be a moment where we don't feel it. (laughs) And it's better to not tack it on fake than to add it for giggles? I don't know. And that's what's happening here. There's no silly, trivial, hallmark confidence added because the psalmist doesn't feel any at all. And there will be times in your life where there are deep cries of anguish without a single feeling toward confidence in God's response. And you'll power through it, like I said before. And there will be times in life where deep, deep anguish, you do not have a single feeling of confidence in God's response And you can't even say that you do. Second, it condemns Christians who never deal with the disappointments of life. There are things in life that are disappointing. And there's this epidemic challenge, craziness within the church where you're just supposed to pretend like that's not true. You can believe that God did something for good and is bringing about good purposes. You can have absolute confidence in that and be really disappointed in what happened or the way things turned out. Your experience of it. And so any superficial Christianity that pretends life doesn't have disappointments, Psalm 88 says, nah, that's, that's ridiculous. Psalm 88 also stands in the tradition of those mentioned in Hebrews 11. You think about the hall of faith, right? And what was their position? They were not yet delivered. 
they had not yet laid their eyes on the fulfillment of the promise. And yet, they're mentioned in this hall of faith because they persevere by believing in that promise. And, and our lives are not without trusting and hoping in something we cannot see. If our faith only works when we can draw a straight line from the problem to how God is going to use that problem for good, that's not terribly helpful faith. You need faith that can persevere. And by the way, this is the faith that God gives. You don't have to manufacture it yourself. That can persevere when you're standing in the problem and you look forward into the future and all you see is darkness. And Psalm 88 says, yep. Now, I don't think we should overlook the fact that Psalm 88 is one out of 150. If this is your normal experience in suffering, that you cannot express confidence in God's response, that you cannot have movement toward praise ever, in suffering, the Psalms do not affirm you in that. But they do tell you, there'll be a time. There, there, there's a type of experience of suffering in this life that for a time cannot say this. And the good news is, by faith, You know this to be true. You knew it before the suffering. You will know it and feel it again. Maybe not even after the suffering, but when God acts and when he hears your cry for help and when he intervenes in you, not necessarily your circumstances. And so the fact that you can't say it here is okay. It's allowed. Questions about... Laments. This is a statement on Psalm 88, which you shoot down. Like the, the remarkable thing, to, the thing that sets Psalm 88 different between complaining without moving to praise, to me, I mean, it's overwhelming declaration of God's sovereignty. Like he makes no bones about the fact that you, you are doing all of this. You're the problem. God. And there's no whiff of unbelief. Like he starts with God of my salvation, right? Like it's not like there's no like how dare you do. It's just you're doing all these things and I hate them, but not. And the very act of the prayer contradicts the idea that the psalmist has no confidence in God's response. Why bother praying? Not just one prayer. Lord, I'm going to say this prayer because I'm mad and then I'm done with you. What does he say? I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Give attention to my cry. I'm going to keep doing this until you answer. Because you will answer. Yeah, the, the, the very fact of Psalm 88 disproves the idea that there is no hope here. He just can't say it. Because if he said it, it would be perfunctory. It'd be performant. It'd be saying it because he knows he's supposed to. Very often in Christianity, the way God works is for us to do the thing we don't want to do in obedience. And God will use that obedience and the experience of it to catch our hearts up to it. Do the thing you don't want to do, but you know God commands of you. You say, well, you know, um, uh, what's an example? A cheerful giver. God says he loves a cheerful giver, so I won't be generous until I can be cheerful about it. Doesn't work, right? Be generous, and God will catch the heart up to it. He will make the cheerful heart 
from the giver. It's that way in a lot of things. The heart should follow, not lead. The heart is really important in the Christian life. I'll talk about it in the sermon. The feelings matter. We don't want an intellectual Christianity that has no emotional experience of life or God or the things around us. But feelings can't lead. That's where you get into trouble. Follow your heart to death. <laughs> you all know you don't want me to follow my heart. <laughs> what's, the, what's the difference between that, like the example you gave with the cheerful giver and um, saying things because we're, we think we're supposed to? The heart? <laughs> yeah. Uh, the level of honesty? Isn't there a difference that you feel between I'm going to give so that other will, will see me give. I'm going to give so that John, the treasurer, will know how much I give and believe me to be a generous person. I don't want to give. But isn't there a difference between that and, Lord, I don't want to give. I'm giving because you tell me this is good for me. Could you make me believe that? Could you make, the heart. That's why we don't like it very much. This is why we don't like a lot about Christianity very much. Because we want a really clear systematized set of checkboxes that if I follow these steps, I know I'm good. That's what the Pharisees did. It's exactly what the Pharisees did. And so they took this amazing, perfect moral law and made it whitewashed tombs. And the heart, the motive, the truth, matters so much. If nothing else, if God would make us truth tellers, if we would actually have to say out loud what we believe is true and then deal with that in our relationships and with ourselves, how quickly could God work with us if we were giving the truth for him to work with? But instead, we tack on, if God wills. I don't mean that. I mean, God, if you don't give me this, I'm going to be furious. Say that part out loud. God can do some good work there.